And these are some verses from Galatians, from Galatians chapter 6. Those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised obey the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may, that they may boast about your flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our, our sorry. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and to the world, and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. So we come to our reading this morning, which is from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 30, going through to 12, verse 10. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father, our Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. I must go on boasting, although there is nothing to be gained. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things that man is not permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself, except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool, because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given to me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. If you want to be the best... To get on in life, to be promoted ahead of the competition, you need the triple A key to success. You need to focus on your abilities, your achievements, your own ambitions, because nobody else is going to live your life for you. It's down to you to take the initiative, to maximise your potential, keep moving up the ladder. Laziness is not an option, nor is half-heartedness, nor is failure. We live in a culture which at the moment particularly preaches that kind of message that sets out deliberately and maybe rightly to reward highly motivated, hard-working people. 
It's the Protestant work ethic, without much Protestant in it these days. But it's the ethic that drives Northern Europe towards success and prosperity, which means that in some quarters there's little sympathy for what is perceived as the more easygoing Mediterranean outlook that prevails in countries like Greece, for example. But is the kingdom of God like that? How does the culture of self-reliance that we seem to need to succeed in the world of work and business relate to working for God in the world? Does God want us to be the best that we can be? Most certainly he does. Does God want us to do the best that we possibly can for him? Absolutely, without a doubt. Does God want us to take pride in our achievements, our ambitions and our abilities? Well, perhaps we can't give quite such a a confident, unambiguous yes in answer to that question. Pride in the presence of God. Hmm. An awareness of the presence of God tends to lead towards humility and worship rather than pride in ourselves. Back in the 20th century, mid-20th century, it was Rudolf Bultmann who tried to define sin in terms of self-reliance. Partly, I think, in, in an attempt to enable middle-class successful people to discern the way in which sin lurked even in their deeply respectable, hard-working lives. He attributes to Paul the insight that sin is man's self-powered striving to undergird his own existence in forgetfulness of his creaturely existence, to procure his salvation by his own strength, the striving which finds its ultimate expression in boasting and trusting in the flesh. The antithesis of that kind of self-focused, go-get-it attitude are the words we find in Ephesians that by grace you are saved through faith. And that's not something of yourselves, it's the work of God. We're not saved by works so that nobody can boast. I read Paul's letters, you know, and I sense that Paul perhaps wasn't naturally a very humble man. He's proud of his background, he's proud of his achievements, he's proud of the way in which he lived for God. It almost feels like he has to restrain himself when it comes to talking about his abilities, his achievements and his ambitions from that note of pride being sounded too clearly. He compares himself to other preachers of the gospel and says, I worked harder than any of them, but but it wasn't me, it was the grace of God working in me, of course, I need to say that. He could say that he'd fully preached the gospel across the western Mediterranean world, planting churches, bringing people to Christ, God working miracles and healings through him along the way. And it was his constant ambition to go and preach the gospel in fresh places where no one had heard of Jesus before. There was no doubt that he was a man with extraordinary drive and energy and ambition. Yet at the same time, consciously, he sought to submit all of that to Christ. What do we have that we didn't receive from God in the first place, he asks. If that's the case, then why do you boast about it as if you didn't receive it as a gift? If you're going to boast in anything, make sure you boast in the Lord, because the cross negates financial wealth, social status, academic achievement, all the things that we take pride in are brought to nothing 
by the cross of Christ. So rather than pointing at all the things he was doing, he preferred to talk of what God had done through him. Speaking of using gifts he had received, acts of service that he'd performed. So yes, he worked extremely hard and he achieved a huge amount, but he also worked hard at avoiding being proud or taking the credit for what he'd done. So when he does engage in boasting, as he does towards the end of 2 Corinthians, he boasts of things that actually disparage and denigrate his greatness or his achievement. That business about being rescued from his enemies in Damascus by being lowered lowered over the wall in a basket is a classic example. The ancient world praised the courage of the heroic soldier who was first over the wall at the head of an army when attacking a city. Paul says, yeah, well, I I was first over the wall as well, but I, I was escaping the city. I was running away. I was being lowered by my friends in a basket in a most undignified fashion. Why does Paul record this? Because he's parodying those who set such great store by their achievements for God who could tell fantastic stories to impress their hearers and and set out all their spiritual credentials and achievements. When Paul boasts about being lowered over a city wall in a basket, he's deliberately trying to take the wind out of their sails. It's the same with this matter of visions and revelations from the Lord. Seemingly faced with those who were claiming that God had spoken directly to them, Paul talks about somebody else, a man in Christ, who had had the most amazing vision of the third heaven, who had been caught up to paradise and heard things that that no one could express. And although he says he's not talking about himself, it's pretty clear that really he is talking about himself. And he's making the point that he could, if he chose, beat these people at their own game. They were pointing to their ecstatic experiences and revelations as evidence of their spiritual credentials and authority. Paul says, I'm not going to do that. I could, if I chose to. I can tell you all sorts of stories about somebody else, but I'm not going to go down that road. If I'm going to boast about anything, I will boast about my personal weaknesses. That thorn in the flesh that actually was deliberately given to him to stop him being too big-headed about all the wonderful things he'd heard and seen when he had this visionary experience of paradise. And what was this thorn in the flesh? Nobody knows. Probably it was some kind of physical disability, possibly related to his eyesight, though there's a large dose of guesswork and speculation in any suggestion. But what's clear is it was a trial to Paul, and he prayed three times to have it taken away. But his prayer wasn't answered in the way that he hoped or desired. Instead he was told, you'll have to make do with God's grace. Because that's more than enough, actually, for you to cope with. And more, since God's power is made perfect in your weakness. So on the back of that disappointment, Paul says he threw himself into welcoming adversity whenever it came his way. Weaknesses, insults, persecutions, hardships, difficulties, all these undesirable things were grist to his mill because he'd found that when he was weakest, that's when he was also the strongest. He had no option to rely, but to rely on the power of Christ working in and through him rather than his own resources. Just as Christ being crucified released the saving power of God into the world, 
Paul found that when he identified himself with Christ crucified on the cross, the life-giving power of the resurrection of Christ was released into the lives of those through whom he ministered. I'm being given over to death all the time, he says. But when that happens, the life of Christ is revealed in you. So yes, Paul had actually a good store of abilities he could point to, of achievements he could celebrate, of ambitions that he he spoke about. He had the triple A key to success. And being a Christian meant that he didn't deny or disown these qualities he had. He was no passive recipient of God's grace. He didn't take the back seat, refusing to push himself forward, always allowing other people to set the agenda because I'm not really good at anything, you know. He didn't have that kind of false humility. Far from it. He used all the abilities and talents he had, but he used them in the service of Christ. Fully conscious of the way in which he had received them from Christ. And he was called to exercise and use them in reliance on the grace of Christ. We don't preach ourselves, he said. We preach Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your servants for his sake. Self-reliance, that was something he consciously sought to avoid. Everything he knew he had came from Christ. Everything he did, he did for Christ in reliance on the grace of Christ, whose power was made perfect in his weakness. And what about us? What do we do with our ambitions, our abilities and our achievements? Being a Christian doesn't involve denying their existence, telling ourselves and others that that we're not good at anything out of a misguided sense of humility. If we have ambitions, achievements and and abilities, let's be honest about them, but let's recognise as well that these are God's gifts to us. And he calls us to use them in his service. Yes, to the best of our ability, but to his glory, not ours. And we need to be aware of being proud. Beware of, of the person who kind of person says, I'm very modest, but then... I have a lot to be modest about. There are danger signs. If we don't bother praying about what we do, that surely is a key indication that we are relying on ourselves rather than on God. Our prayerlessness fails to acknowledge him as the source and the giver of the raw material that makes us who we are. Our prayerlessness seeks to to find a dependence on his grace in doing what we do. Our prayerlessness forgets that everything we do, we actually do for him. Another danger sign can be our attitude to others, who perhaps do things differently or see things differently. Do we welcome their cooperation and insight and support, or do we see them as competition? Are they doing it better than me? I can't let them get away with that. Do we value the opportunity to work alongside someone else, to step aside to make room for them and have their gifts complement our own, or do we prefer to forge on ahead without them? Working in the kingdom is always teamwork. We cooperate with God, we cooperate with others. And if we can advance the cause of others, then that is something that we are called to do. 
In God's list of policies, there is no lone working policy because God never employs lone workers. We always work with him and with other people. And if you start to think, actually, it's all down to me, this place would fall apart without me, that can be an indication that you've stopped working for God and you've become self-employed somewhere along the line, perhaps without even realising it. Remember who you are working for. Recognise and welcome those whom God calls you to work with. Another danger of pride is thinking, I've got this thing sewn up actually. I can can do this with complete confidence in my own ability. I've got to be honest, I think we need to sound a word of caution here. Because I think sometimes Christians can appear a little bit pathetic when we talk about relying on God and, and needing to pray and I couldn't possibly do that without God helping me, whereas somebody else does a perfectly good job who isn't a Christian and actually doesn't have all this spiritual talk about, oh, I really need to rely on God to get through the day. What's that about? Are we really that weak and unable to make a living for ourselves that we need to rely on God all the time? Well, we do we need to rely on God if we make everything we do an act of worship. Because that's what we're called to do. We're called not just to do a good job. We're called not just to work to the best of our ability. We are called to do everything we do to the glory of God. Not my pride, not my ambition, not to secure the promotion, not to get the pay rise. I do what I do for God. And you can't do what you do for God if you're not relying on him and in touch with him and dependent on him in prayer. Because he calls us, whatever we do, to do it as an act of worship. So often we can make the mistake of reducing worship to the songs and hymns we sing in church. If we like the songs and hymns, we've worshipped. If we don't, then we haven't managed to worship on a Sunday morning. Whereas Paul rightly points out that spiritual worship, spiritual worship is presenting our bodies as living sacrifices that are holy and acceptable to God giving ourselves completely to him, living for him 24-7. That means that everything we do is infused with the Spirit and the grace of Christ. Everything we do is not about us. It's all about him. And I give of my best for the one who is immeasurably greater and better than I am. That's our motivation. So yes, rather than focusing on the triple A's of ambition, achievement and ability. Let's not deny that they're there, but let's submit them all to Christ and make sure that we plug in to God's 4G network. Whatever we do, we do it by grace, with gratitude, in gladness, for his glory. Let's pray.